Hey, this is Mark. This past May, the Food and Drug Administration okayed a move long anticipated by public health experts and gay rights activists. The agency dropped all restrictions specific to gay and bisexual men donating blood. The new guidance doesn't restrict donations based on someone's sexual orientation or gender identity. Instead, FDA said it will move toward an individual risk-based approach to reduce the risk of accidental HIV infection through the blood donation system. That means the blood donation risk assessment will be the same for every donor, regardless of how they identify. It also ends the three-month automatic deferral for any sexually active gay, bisexual, or other men who have sex with men. While it's a move advocates have long argued for, adoption of the non-binding guidance among blood donation centers has been slow, and public health messaging does not match practice. My colleague Jack O'Brien interviews Jason Cienciato, VP of Communications and Policy at the Gay Men's Health Crisis, about the finalized guidance and why GHMC, which has been calling for FDA to change its blood donation guidance since 2010, considers the ban still in effect. Lesh is on assignment at Digital Pharma East this week, so we've got an LGBTQ plus twofer for you today. Jack also speaks with Ramsey Johnson, founder and president of the group OutBio, a Boston-based professional networking group, about the role pharma and biotech play in terms of supporting the LGBTQ community and where there's room for improvement. And Jack, what's trending in the health world this week? This week, we're going to be talking about Steven Tyler's vocal cords, TikTok's free bleeding trend, and Elon Musk's defense of Neuralink's brain implant strategy with dying monkeys. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Hello and welcome to the MMM Podcast. My name is Jack O'Brien. I am the Digital Editor at MMM. I'm pleased to be joined today by Jason Cienciato the Vice President of Communications and Policy at the Gay Men's Health Crisis. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Jack. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you being on the show. And this is kind of a, an interesting topic that we probably haven't really talked about at length on the podcast as it relates to the changes that we've seen related to blood donor rules and restrictions by the FDA. I want to start there on a baseline, just if you can kind of give us a high level overview of what changes we've seen in recent months as it relates to expanding eligibility on that front. Jack, in May, uh, I believe on May 1st, um, uh, FDA guidance was finalized that um, got rid of the uh, three-month automatic deferral for any sexually active, gay, bisexual, or other men who have sex with men, um, we refer to as MSM. And they replaced it with uh, a policy that GMHE has been calling for um, since uh, 2010, so over 13 years ago. They are suggesting to blood donation centers, and, and that suggestion, that non-binding guidance is something really important for us to come back to, um, that they replace the donor history questionnaire, um, which currently asks, um, have you had sex with another man in the past three months? And if the answer is yes, you can't uh, donate. In other words, you have to have been celibate for three months in order to uh, donate blood and uh, instead are going to be asking a series of questions that assess um, certain behaviors that um, can lead to a higher risk of exposure to HIV. And the questions are uh, gender neutral. 
in a sense, the, the same guidelines and potential restrictions apply to the individual donor, regardless of um, their gender. And, you know, that's really good news um, that um, those changes have been made. But uh, as is so often the case, the devil is in the details and there are, are still a lot of problems. And I'm curious about that point, if you could ex- extrapolate on that, because I know that when the guidance came out, a lot of people obviously applauded it as long overdue and pointed to, you know, some of the the myths that have surrounded the HIV and AIDS crisis since the 80s. But they also see that there's room for improvement. Where do you see room for improvement on that front? Well, you know, if you read if you read the, the headlines, including quotes from some, um, you know, large national LGBTQ nonprofits like uh, GLAAD, um, you'd think that the ban has been completely lifted and all the wrongs have been righted. And now, um, you know, the majority of gay, bisexual, and men who have sex with men um, can just go into a blood center and donate blood and everything is fine. And that's not true. Um, so I mentioned earlier that the FDA guidance is non-binding. In other words, a blood donation center could choose whether or not to opt in to this new guidance. And, you know, since we're now uh, recording this in, in towards the middle of August, and this guidance first came out on May 1st, and a lot of those articles espousing that the ban had been lifted uh, came out on the same day. The FDA did some some really uh, impressive uh, media outreach and, and marketing and, and uh, messaging on that day. It wouldn't surprise me if there have already been folks who've gone into their local blood center thinking they could donate and uh, been told no. Um, In fact, it's only recent that, for example, in the state of North Carolina, um, the American Red Cross there announced that uh, they had implemented the policy. But in uh, New York City, where GMHC is located, the blood uh, donation centers there have not yet implemented the policy and uh, they have not said when that is going to happen. And so here we have a situation where, uh, or one of the situations where messaging does not match practice and where people could get the wrong impression that they could donate when in fact they can't and may not be able to ever despite this policy if their local blood donation center uh, chooses not to implement it. I appreciate you bringing up that point because I also live in New York and I've donated blood since um, the guidance came out. Obviously, that doesn't apply to me. I'm a cis straight man, but I did notice when I was filling out my questionnaire at a blood center that is not the American Red Cross that that wasn't included there. And I thought it was interesting you highlighting that point that it is ultimately up to the place that you donate to to decide whether or not they want to opt into that policy. That's correct. But Jack, even though you're cis and straight, the policy actually could apply to you. Because uh, eventually in New York City, when when the um, uh, new guidelines are implemented, you'll be asked if you have had um, anal sex with more than one partner or a new partner in the past three months. And if you respond yes to that question, then you will be deferred for three months, regardless of your sexual orientation, gender identity, and regardless of that of your sexual partners. And I imagine a lot of people probably don't look at that as what they view as equality in that sense, because then it's saying, oh, this is something that was only applied to this one group. And now it's being applied to a larger group. And maybe they're almost getting a sense of, oh, this is how it's been for so long for this community. 
we don't like this. You know, how, how does that play out, do you think, in the long term? Well, I think that there's a lot of stigma and shame around um, sex and sexuality and gender in the United States, regardless of who you are or who you're having sex with. And um, I think uh, having anal sex could be included in that, right? And so, whereas um, uh, gay and bi men who are aware of the policy or have tried to donate in the past um, know that they were going to be asked these questions, uh, heterosexual uh, uh, folks have uh, not had to be in a situation where their individual sexual behaviors and number of sexual partners have been included as a screening tool for something as um, meaningful and intimate as donating blood. And I, I imagine that that um, might come as a surprise to them. And I think you're right. It, it perhaps um, uh, provides people who've um, thought they've never had to deal with that kind of scrutiny, donating blood, uh, to actually have to uh, consider it. And, you know, that, that stigma and shame is such an important part of why GMHC which was um, founded as Gay Men's Health Crisis in 1982, the world's first HIV and AIDS services organization. It's why we've been fighting this FDA policy because uh, one of the, the drivers of the HIV epidemic, one of the things that continues to provide a context for new transmission of HIV is that stigma and shame because it causes people to hide who they are and what they do. It causes them to not talk about their sexual behavior and their sexual health in general. And, and those kinds of things um, may end up leading people to um, make decisions about their behavior that doesn't um, make protecting themselves from HIV and STIs front and center. And I was wondering if you could expand on that front, because uh, like we mentioned earlier in the conversation, this has been a policy that's been in place for decades at this point. Can you speak to that kind of negative impact on the LGBTQIA community as it relates to not being able to you know, contribute in a meaningful way? I know there are plenty of uh, people that consider themselves gay or bisexual that you know, aren't allowed to donate blood. And that can be you know, embarrassing and, and, like you said, stigmatizing. Sure. Well, I can, if it's OK, tell you a very personal story about um, the impact that it has. Um, we're going to go back a number of decades to when I uh, was in high school. And um, my high school, like so many other schools and colleges and universities around the country, was having an annual blood drive. And uh, I wanted to participate. I, you know, I wanted to not just be a part of school spirit, but, but, but be a part of that very um, selfless, uh, and life-saving gift that that drives people to donate, right? You know, you're you're giving literally a part of yourself um, that will go to someone that you will never know and could potentially save their life. Um, and at that time, I was closeted. Um, I was uh, living with my mother and stepfather, who are um, fundamentalist uh, Christians. I was raised from, you know, two years old in that environment where it was very clear that, um, quote unquote, homosexuality was a sin and where I was told literally that, you know, choosing to be gay means that you will live a life of loneliness and isolation and that you will eventually get AIDS and die. Uh, and so, uh, you know, imagine how shocked I was as a teenager when I sat down and the person who was um, facilitating the um, 
donor history questionnaire asked me if I had, you know, had sex with another man since uh, 1978. I, I'm forgetting the exact date that the original question was, but it was around that time um, because I wasn't expecting it. And because I was so afraid of people knowing about me, and I was so afraid of rejection from my family, from God, from my religion. And, you know, if there was a camera, I'm sure it would have seen my, my jaw drop. How did this person know? Why were they asking me this question? Did they think that I was gay just by looking at me? Um, and uh, it, so that experience is what countless other gay and bisexual men um, have, have also experienced throughout this time period because it, it singled out someone's identity as somehow being inherently more diseased, right? That, that, that somehow being gay meant that I was a danger to others, um, that I was a danger to the blood supply. Even though at that time I hadn't had participated in sexual behavior that would have uh, exposed me to HIV. Um, and, you know, over the years, uh, while the FDA touted its progress by, you know, when it dropped in um, 2015 to uh, 12, 12 months instead of lifetime. In other words, uh, if you had had um, sex with another man in the past 12 months, you couldn't donate. Then uh, during uh, the, the height of the outbreak of the COVID pandemic, magically the FDA just dropped it to three months without making any announcement, without having any hearing, because, surprise, there was a very high need for blood. So suddenly they thought it was okay to uh, lower the restrictions to um, use gay blood. Even now, under the new policy, um, it still singles out anal sex over other forms of sex, like vaginal sex, which can uh, also uh, lead to uh, uh, transmission of HIV, though at admittedly a, a much um, lower rate. And uh, <laughs> honestly, even even uh, this sort of notion of oh, we're making this uh, gender neutral. Well, look, I, I'm no expert on the proclivity of anal sex among heterosexually identified people. But let's be real. If you're singling out anal sex, you're really primarily affecting um, gay and bisexual men. And um, that carries forth that stigma. But there are other ways too. Like for example, what, what has been hidden in all of these positive news articles uh, is uh, these other restrictions that undermine cornerstones of the CDC's uh, HIV prevention messaging over the past 40 years. Because even if you used a condom religiously while having anal sex, you still can't donate. Even if you are on pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, which is a medication that, that when taken as prescribed is very highly effective, over 90% effective at um, preventing HIV infection if exposed to the virus, you can't donate. In fact, if you're on PrEP as a pill, um, you can't donate for um, three months since the last pill that you took. And if you are, are using the new injectable PrEP, 
um, you can't donate for 12 months post the last injection that you received. And people who are taking PrEP, they are getting more comprehensive routine medical care than most other people, gay or straight. They're going to a doctor every three months to get HIV and STI uh, tested. They are more aware of their behavior, the risk that they they may have been um, exposed to, yet they are still excluded. And the FDA did not release any real data or information to uh, justify this. And that's a real problem. Absolutely. And I, I want to thank you, Jason, one, for your your candidness in terms of being able to talk about your own lived experience through this issue and the ramifications as it relates to the lack of action matching up with messaging. And on that point, I wanted to ask you, because you were kind of alluding to it at the end there, what maybe some of the more sticky and longstanding myths are around HIV and AIDS? Because I feel like a lot of the reporting that I've seen, certainly in the mainstream press, but even in some trade publications like ours, is We've made a lot of headway. I know that the 2030 goal is what the federal government has for being able to um, end the HIV epidemic as it stands. But when you look at it from your lens, what is still out there in terms of challenges or maybe where the public needs to be able to fully understand this issue more, uh, more thoroughly? Sure. I think it is important for me to um, share that uh, gay and bisexual men are still um, the highest uh, group, the group with the highest number of new HIV infections in this country. And because of biology around the thickness of the cell membrane of the anus versus that of the vagina, um, having uh, anal sex still um, has a, a much higher risk of contracting HIV if uh, exposed to the virus. Um, and it's important that we ask why. Why is it still that game by men amidst you know forty years of education information about HIV, amidst the availability of prep, um, amidst the um, messaging around condoms? Why is is this community still disproportionately affected? And you know the answers are complex because uh, they have a lot to do with. Um, things that uh, affect uh, certain uh, uh, groups in this country's minority groups, particularly stigmatized minority groups, health, health in general. Um, you know, things like um, uh, poverty, lack of access to um, comprehensive and consistent um, health insurance, um, lack of um, uh, safe and secure housing and food, right? These are all issues that take issues uh, like HIV and other health issues and push them lower down on the priority list for folks who understandably have a lot more um, things to be worried about regarding their basic needs. You know, you, you need only look at what's happening in Florida and states around the nation regarding LGBT issues, right? You know, years after we finally achieved marriage equality um, and to see that it is still uh, really challenging to be anything other than cisgender and heterosexual in this country. There is a very loud and vocal and well-organized and moneyed mi minority socio-politically and religiously that continues 
to use attacking and, and fomenting fear around um, LGBTQ plus people, uh, even now on the backs of children, on transgender children and parents who are simply just trying to keep their kids alive and get them access to the um, uh, health care that they need in order to score political points, in order to um, win elections. And um, all of these things and many others combined um, make the context around what it means to be LGBTQ plus in this country full of issues and challenges that ultimately lead to higher chance of contracting HIV. Jason, I've really appreciated you being on the show and being able to share your insights and the work the organization has done. And on that on that end, you know, we've obviously in the past honored um, the G- GMHC and FCB Health for the Bloody Quality Campaign at the MM&M Awards. I know that you were active in the AIDS New York, the AIDS Walk in New York earlier this year um, with addressing the monkey pox, the monkeypox, mpox outbreak last year. What can, what else can we expect from your organization going forward, or what you know? Can you give us a little preview on that end? Sure. Um, you know, GMHC has recently significantly expanded uh, the number of supporting housing units that we are um, are able to provide to clients in need. In fact, uh, the number of units that we will have um, expanded to over, over the next several months have grown from about 90 to nearly 250. And you know, GMHC uses what, what's called a housing first model, which means that the, the number one thing that someone needs um, is safe and secure housing right away. Not waiting until, you know, they've um, had any substance use or or mental health uh, treatment needs met, Um, you know, not waiting until they have begun um, treatment for HIV if if they're living with the virus. Um, Get them into housing first because that safety and security addresses so many of those uh, underlying structural drivers I mentioned earlier, and it's a really exciting development for us, uh, particularly amidst you know a housing crisis nationwide, let alone in New York City, to be able to you know provide this for our clients. That's very meaningful work that you're doing on behalf of them, and obviously it goes without saying. So I appreciate you being on the show, Jason. Appreciate all the work the organization has done, being able to answer these questions about the changes to you know blood donation regulations, and hopefully as changes come down the line, we can revisit this at some point and see what impact that's having on the community. Well, thanks again so much, Jack, for having me and for focusing on this issue and and for supporting our work with um, FCP Health. I actually would like to share just like one more interesting factoid that your listeners. It may really pique their interest. Is that okay? Sure. That's totally fine. So, you know, one of the things that um, can happen under the FDA's new policy is that an individual could have vaginal sex without a condom, without being on PrEP, with as many partners as they want in any given period of time and not be restricted for uh, for donating blood based solely on that behavior. And hey, we're sex positive, right? So go out, be safe, have an incredible sex life. But uh, when you compare that to the fact that um, a gay man who only has two sexual partners in the past three months is restricted, it it really highlights that uh, continued disparity. And there's a little science behind that difference, but it's mostly sociocultural and sociopolitical because the FDA 
says it's making decisions based on science, but it's ultimately making decisions based on um, the socio-political context. And that's really important to keep in mind. I, I appreciate you highlighting that double standard there. It's it's obvious when you put it that way that there's uh, clearly a disparity on that front, and one that I think that our our listeners will certainly benefit from as they go forward. You know, being able to think about this issue and certainly message to patients and consumers on that issue. So I appreciate you including that as well. Thank you, Jack. I'm pleased today to be joined by the founder and president of OutBio, Ramsey Johnson. Ramsey, how are you doing today? I'm good, Jack. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. I've We've spoken before, but for those who are not familiar with your organization or the work that you do, can you give us a quick rundown of OutBio and its history? Sure. So I always like to start off any explanation of OutBio by, uh, with the disclosure that I have a day job and a gay job. <laughs> so OutBio is not my day job. Uh, it's not what pays the bills. Um, I am uh, vice president of clinical operations at Adidam Bio uh, right now. So I run uh, a, a number of clinical programs for them. And I've been in the clinical research industry for about uh, 25 years. That's kind of my life science connection to um, to that community. My gay job is I'm the president and founder of OutBio, as you, um, as you mentioned. And I started OutBio about eight years ago, just as a way to kind of network uh, with people at that time in 2015, was uh, thinking about uh, my next role in, in the clinical research world and um, was just looking for ways to, to meet people and invited a few LGBTQ individuals that I knew that happened to work in drug development just for a meet and greet, essentially, trying to mimic kind of what other industries had in terms of meetup groups like Out in Tech and there's a similar uh, organization in the finance world. But there was nothing in the life sciences. So I, I started it in 2015. We probably got 10 or 11 people that showed up. And it's just taken off since then. Uh, it's sort of taken a light on a life of its own in terms of its growth and expansion. Uh, we operated as a pretty small organization for the first uh, few years. And then um, once the pandemic hit, we kind of took the time while we were taking a break from our in-person events to fully incorporate as a 501c3. And, you know, at that point kind of expanded beyond just being a, a meetup group. Uh, now we have things like uh, a mentor program, a scholarship program. We just hosted our first ever annual ERG summit back in May, which we hope to make a regular thing. And we're expanding beyond the um, Boston and Cambridge area. And I'm, I'm happy to talk a bit more about that um, uh, if you're interested or, or later on. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really interested in the expansion plans because obviously you've been at this for almost a decade now. And it's really impressive to see where it started from and where it's going. And to that end, you talk about expansion. Obviously, biotech is really centered in a few areas across the country. But being able to tap into those networking communities and tapping into you know the thousands of people that work in this industry, I imagine, is very important for your organization. Yeah. And we, you know, early on sort of identified obvious for obvious reasons, the Bay Area as an area we would love to try and expand into. But, you know, we, we kind of had trouble gaining momentum there. I would identify a couple of people that were sort of interested in doing something, but then it would never sort of take off. And, you know, what I found um, within the last couple of years is what it really takes is sort of a champion in, um, in a particular area to really get things going. And that's what kind of happened in the 
in the geographic locations where we've expanded. So you know, you, you kind of you can't force it. You have to allow people to kind of come to you and say, "We see what you're doing in Boston and Cambridge, and we want to do something similar where we are." And so the first sort of group of people that reached out and wanted to do that was a small group in the UK. So they reached out, I think, probably during the pandemic and said, you know, we've been to a couple of your virtual events, uh, which we were doing because of COVID. We think that's great. And we want to do something like what you all have done in Boston here in the UK. And so what we did with them is we signed a licensing agreement that allows them to use the Outbio name and logo. But they are essentially an independent organization um, because we don't have a paid staff here in, in Boston um, without Bio Inc., sort of the, the original organization. So we can't run these groups as sort of true chapters. And so that's the model that we kind of adopted with the UK that you know, they would run independently. They have their own board or steering committee. They get their own legal entity status. Um, and you know, they are sort of off and running doing their own thing. So that worked in the UK. Then, you know, Bay Area kind of jumped in and said, we want to do something. They were sort of the next one. I think San Diego was shortly after the Bay Area. Then Greater New York wanted to do something. And then most recently, in addition to Ireland, also Republic of Ireland has their own organization in Dublin. And then most recently, a group in Seattle reached out and wanted to, to do something. So we're in sort of the starting stages of getting our licensing agreement in place. Um, they're creating a website and starting to create a distribution slash mailing list to build the organization there in Seattle. So I think the, the thing I learned is, like, like I said earlier, you, you, you have to kind of let people dictate when an area, a specific area is ready for an organization like Outbio, you can't force it. And so that's what we've done. You know, I wait for people to come to us and say, we want to do something here in Seattle or Bay Area or San Francisco or, uh, or Greater New York or, or wherever. Um, and uh, I let them kind of dictate when uh, an organization is ready to get up and running and when a, a you know, geographic location is ready. And what would you say to some of the people who may be listening to this podcast that have a similar interest or have you know pursued a different, a similar idea like that in terms of hey, I maybe want to start my own chapter or have my own entity in my area? What is what does the outreach look like, or what should their expectations be in terms of actually getting this thing off the ground? Yeah, what I usually tell people is kind of start with a mailing list, so start gauging interest. Um, you know, so reach out to do exactly what I did eight years ago, reach out to the two or three people that you happen to know that that work in the life sciences um, and say, I'm thinking of starting this thing. Would you be interested? And if so, you know, reach out to your network, your own personal network and and forward this to them, have them contact me and to see if they would be interested once you get a sort of critical mass, which I would say is, you know, 20, 30 people on a distribution list, try having an event. You don't have to sort of recreate the wheel. It, you know, it doesn't have to be rocket science. You all meet at a you know, gay bar downtown, wherever you are, see how many people show up. Um, and, you know, the other thing I, I, I often tell the groups when they're starting is don't bite off more than you can chew sort of too early. I think people always come to me with these grand plans of, being a networking organization, having monthly events, having a scholarship fund, having, uh, you know, uh, a mentor program, doing volunteer committee, like doing all these things. And, you know, I always say I took, it took me five years before 
we did anything other than just having monthly events. So, you know, take two years, build your mailing list, do nothing but have events every month, you know, be the become the best organization you can be at, at you know, having social events. Um, and then you can think about doing other things when the group dictates it. You know, we didn't start thinking about mentor programs and scholarship funds until we did a couple of surveys of our members and they came back to us and said, those are the things that we're interested in. You know, we love the monthly events. We love socializing and networking and meeting people, but we also would love to be matched with a mentor. We would love to see Outbio award a scholarship. We would love to see an ERG summit. Um, so, you know, we let the members kind of dictate, um, you know, wh- where the organization went, um, at least in the beginning. It's important to underscore that element of incremental build and not trying to, you know, drink the whole ocean, if you will. And I kind of wanted to talk about that element of community because obviously that's something that in this uh, time in American history where there has been so much progress made in terms of LGBTQ rights, there is also this not only existential, but very real threat to some of those being clawed back in certain states across the country, whether it's in relation to gay rights, trans rights, you name it. I'm curious about the value of community in these times, especially in the pharma and biotech industry, which is you know, small C conservative in terms of not necessarily being the most progressive and out there, but they obviously want to support their employees and leaders. Can you talk about that value of community at this time? Because I think it's important for our audience to really understand. Yeah. And I don't think OutBio would have gotten as big as we did, you know, grown as quickly as we did if there weren't a need um, for community. And I think in the beginning, it surprised me, to be honest, because, you know, we here in Boston live in a very liberal city in a very liberal state. We all work in a very liberal industry in the life science of drug development and biotech. So I, in the beginning, was surprised at, you know, the interest in getting on our mailing list, coming to our events, because I thought, you know, if if any place is going to, if there's ever going to feel like there's a community anywhere, it would be here in Boston. So I, you know, I felt like there, there surely can't be this much of a need for people to feel like they're part of something, but there was the mailing list just exploded. You know, people, we went from 10 events to 10 people at our events to 30 to 50 to 100. I mean, before I knew it, there were 200 people coming to our events every month. So I think, you know, people are just hungry for feeling like they're part of something. They want to see the same faces that they see every month. You know, they want to feel like they're part of that Boston, you know, in our case here in Boston, that same part of that same Boston community, life science community, you know, they, they want that sense of family. And I think it's more important now than ever with everything that we see happening in other parts of the country. I think, you know, we start, it's easy to get complacent here in Boston because we're not in Texas, we're not in Florida, we're not in some of these states where they're really struggling, where, you know, you see all the this legislation um, getting passed that is a danger to the people in our community. So, you know, it's easy to get complacent. And I think that's one of the things we try and raise at our events every month is just remind people how lucky we are to live and work where we work and that it's not as easy for other members of our community that don't live here in in Massachusetts. So I think it's more important now than ever to feel like we're part of a community and we have a family and we're connected to each other and, you know, we need to support each other and be kind. And, um, and you know, that's something that we're always trying to promote at our events. 
And is there a role for pharma and biotech to play in terms of being outwardly supportive of the LGBTQ community? Or is, is there area for maybe room for improvement that we haven't seen in past years? I think there's always room for improvement. I think some companies do more than others, obviously. But, um, you know, I think here in Massachusetts, we're very lucky. I think, you know, there are a lot of the biotech and, and pharma here in the Boston and Cambridge area is very supportive. I think that, you know, a lot of companies now are starting to recognize the value in showing their support of the LGBTQ community and what that can potentially do for driving the diversity of their talent pipeline. Um, and so I think, you know, that's what, when I'm talking to companies about potentially being a financial sponsor of Outbio or sponsoring one of our events or hosting an event, that's always the you know, sort of big topic of conversation. People don't want to come right out and say, well, what's in it for me if I you know, host an event or if I become a donor uh, of Outbio? But obviously they want to know, you know, what are they going to get out of it? And I think that's what they get. The LGBTQ community is very small. Um, we do our homework. We want to know if we're going to go work for a company, you know, what, what's their commitment to diversity? What organizations do they support? You know, have they ever hosted an Outbio event, for example? What other types of things um, have they done? I think it's an obligation almost now when we're interviewing, when I say we, I mean people in the LGBTQ community, when we're interviewing for a new job that we say, you know, what is this company's commitment to diversity moving forward. When I look at your website, how many women do I see on your board? How many people of color do I see in C in the C-suite? I mean, uh, you know, I think I, I certainly feel an obligation now to ask those types of questions. I just started my day job at, at Adidam not that long ago. And it was one of the questions I asked and I wouldn't be working there now if I didn't feel like, you know, they were doing everything they could to make sure that they had a diverse organization and that they had a commitment to diversity um, moving forward. So I think it's inherent uh, in all of us to ask those types of questions. And, and I would be remiss if I didn't bring it up for our audience, which are primarily medical marketers too. I believe that there's probably a tie-in in terms of how consumers in the LGBTQ community look at, say, pharma or healthcare brands as well, where it says, you know, if you're not supporting our causes or, you know, things that we value, you know, we'll go find another competitor that will. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, people rank on June a little bit, a little bit on Pride Month and companies sort of rainbow washing and changing their logos on LinkedIn. I love it. I mean, I think, you know, uh, I think all companies sh should do it. I think it's a nice indicator of, you know, who's supportive of the uh, community, even if it's just for the the month of June, obviously, we want them to do it all year long, but we'd love to see the those rainbow colors in, in June. And we love to see the companies that are being supportive of our community as consumers and as potential employees. Excellent. Well, Ramsey, I've really appreciated you being on the show and detailing you know, the history of your organization, where it's going. I wanted to give you the final word if there's anything you want to pass along to our audience about what they should know about Outbio and anything else you have going on going forward. Yeah, no, uh, you know, 2024. End of 2023 into 2024, we're fully booked for all of our uh, monthly events. And, you know, we, we hope to do sort of more of the same. We just awarded our scholarship for, for 2023. In fact, we presented um, our, our recipient with his check last night at our event. So we'll be doing another scholarship in 2024. We hope to do another ERG summit in 2024. Uh, and we hope to see Outbio expand um, even more 
over the next year. So if anyone listening want, is interested in finding out more, they can go to our website, which is just outbio.org for more information. And if they're interested in getting on our mailing list, they can do that right there on the website. Awesome. Well, Ramsey, again, really appreciate your time. Appreciate the work the organization does and wish you the best going forward. Thanks, Jack. Trending. And this is the part of the broadcast when we ask Jack what's trending in healthcare this week. Hey, Mark, I just want to say that it's tough being an aging rock star. You can just ask Bruce Springsteen about that or our first topic for the segment, Aerosmith's Steven Tyler. The iconic rock band postponed half a dozen shows this week after Tyler injured his vocal cords during a performance over the weekend. Quote, I'm heartbroken to say I've received strict doctor's orders to not sing for the next 30 days, Tyler posted on Instagram. I sustained vocal cord damage during Saturday's show that led to subsequent bleeding. We'll need to postpone a few dates so that we can come back and give you the performance you deserve. This is yet another reminder that vocal cords are indeed vulnerable to injury and that father time remains undefeated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Tyler's got that high-pitched um, effect that he does with his voice and uh you know, you wonder how long he'll be able to, to sustain that. But when you think about the aging rockers, you know, they can't all be, you know, Mick or Sir Paul, right. And mm -hmm. kind of defy age as, as you say. Um, and while we all marvel at their ability to defy age, uh, we're reminded every now and then that they're human too, and, uh, not the invincible rockers uh, that they once were. So, uh, here, here we go again, you know, after Madonna and, uh, you know, uh, we lost, um, Robbie Robertson, mm -hmm. uh, a while ago. And so, uh, they'll, they'll always be icons, uh, but, uh, you know, they're, they're human too. Yeah. The only thing I have to add to that is we're lucky that's only the vocal cords this time. I remember a few years ago when Steven Tyler fell off the stage while performing, chipped a tooth. So glad that it's, it's mm -hmm. just this and hopefully they get back out there on the road so I can hear dream on and living on the edge and whatever your favorite Dude looks era. like a lady. Yeah. Absolutely. Whatever your favorite Aerosmith song is. Yes. So our second story is a viral TikTok trend that involves young women ditching their typical period routines of using tampons or pads and instead free bleeding or menstruating in absorbable underwear or even just regular underwear with a towel at home. While this may be a queasy topic for some proponents of the trend argue that it's a healthier, more natural way of sitting out your period. Countless people have made videos on the app in recent weeks saying free bleeding has reduced their cramps and even made their periods lighter than usual. Plus, they claim they can avoid the discomfort of tampons and other period products like menstrual cups. However, whether free bleeding is actually healthier than using menstrual products is more of a personal decision. For one, free bleeding doesn't have any proven health benefits, and there's currently no evidence to suggest that it has the ability to make periods lighter. The support for these claims is merely anecdotal, with people noting that it has helped alleviate their cramping and simply feels more comfortable than using menstrual products. Now, Lesha, who is not here this week, wrote that story for the website, and it's another interesting trend that we've seen emerging on TikTok where it's more based on anecdotal evidence, but there is a tie-in where people obviously say that you know it, it works for them in some sort of way. It kind of reminds me of the free birth thing that she had covered a few months ago in terms of people saying, yeah, you can do this. Maybe there aren't considerable health risks, but she noted in the story too that it's more of a you know personal matter in terms of whether or not you feel comfortable having your period or having menstruation in a way that could be public. And it was noted in the article too, that, you know, obviously you have to be considerate of being around people with, you know, fluids or anything like that. So it was just kind of an interesting topic. I don't know how widespread it truly is, but obviously with TikTok, one thing just catches on fire there and it's got plenty of eyeballs. Yeah, it's edgy, uh, and it originated on TikTok, I believe, uh, which means that it's really in that anecdotal 
category, uh, as, as you said, uh, but it's definitely a thing uh, from from what we're reading. And uh, obviously, given the fact that clothes and blood don't usually get along too mm-hmm. well with one another, um, it's a bit more accessible to people who work from home, right? So, yeah. Uh, but but anything that women want to experiment with that could make periods easier to tolerate, I'm supportive. Absolutely. And it's one thing that Lesha had noted in the article. There was a commenter who said, yeah, this could work for people that work from home. But if you have to be in the office, you can't necessarily take off a week or so of being at home. So yeah, if it's in the anecdotal phase, probably nothing wrong with it, but just another interesting TikTok trend that Lesha has brought to light for our audience. Absolutely. I know uh, Mr. Musk is in the news again. What do you got for this one? We're going back to the well because the well is never dry. Elon Musk, the owner of X, formerly Twitter, and brain implant startup Neuralink, recently posted on the former to defend accusations related to the latter. On Monday, Musk pushed back on a user who claimed that Neuralink's brain implants were responsible for the deaths of several monkeys during experimentation. Quote, no monkey has died as a result of a Neuralink implant, Musk tweeted. First, our early implants to minimize risk to healthy monkeys, we chose terminal monkeys, close to death already. Users compared Musk's tweets to that of the absurdist user Drill, with others claiming it was, quote, unequivocally the funniest thing he has ever said. Despite reports from Reuters that Neuralink's testing of a brain implant contributed to the deaths of nearly 1,500 animals over four years, the startup received approval from the FDA to launch its first in-human clinical trial of its brain implants in May. The company said, the company said it is aiming to begin those trials later this year following a $280 million fundraising round. It wouldn't be an episode of this podcast without making some reference to Elon Musk. Obviously, there is a clear tie in here with the Neuralink saga. And, you know, I don't know if having that argument of saying we didn't kill healthy monkeys, we only killed terminally ill monkeys is making the argument that he was expecting. But the logic tree has never stopped Elon Musk from posting anything online. Come to think of it. (laughs) Right. And uh, I did uh, explore this topic back in December um, and, uh, you know, spoke to a, a medical ethicist uh, with uh, knowledge of the Animal Welfare Act um, and, but, you know, didn't have to even go that far uh, to sort of discover that some 1500 animals had died at that point, you know, in association with the Neuralink testing of its brain implant, according to a report that, that Reuters uh, came, uh, that Reuters, I'm not sure if they FOIA'd that request, but they reported on that first. And, you know, in and of itself, that count wasn't necessarily indicative of a violation of, of standard research practice under the, the AWA, the Animal Welfare Act, uh, which sets the parameters for how researchers need to treat animals. Yet the the report was was rather inflammatory in terms of uh, saying that employees at Neuralink had raised red flags about the work culture and that Musk had set unrealistic demands for speed. And those demands, they claimed, had caused them to sweat deadlines and make last-minute changes to surgeries, resulting in slip-ups and scientific procedures that then needed to be repeated, compounding the loss of life. And in one instance, Reuters noted, based on interviews with 20 current and former Neuralink staffers, uh, 25 out of 60 pigs had the wrong size device implanted in their heads. Another involved botched surgeries that left one employee warning of the need to prevent further quote-unquote hack jobs. Uh, you know, so so to unequivocally or, you know, categorically deny that any uh, monkeys in this case had died uh, in association with the testing, it seems a little bit specious. 
It does. And it's one of those things where obviously the goal that they're aiming for are human trials. They want to be able to use these brain implants in humans. I don't know how much support in the court of public opinion there is for that sort of technology, given the track record that we've seen with animals, even if it is, you know, coming from uh, Reuters exposés that have come up over the past couple of months. There are also questions, too, about whether the company had been, you know, leveraging the animal um, testing uh, the animal control board that was overseeing these tests as well. So there have been a lot of uh, questions raised about the ethical uh, points that you referred to in your story, Mark, with Neuralink, but also what it means on the go forward for if they're going to tr- start human trials by the end of this year, early next year. What does that all mean for us if, if there's already this kind of spotty, questionable history? Yeah, and there was another rival company, Synchron, in fact, mm-hmm. that beat them to uh, clinical, the clinical trial stage uh, last year, and they um, had uh, notched a comparatively low 80 animal deaths, according to uh, Reuters. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, this I had read earlier uh, in the year that uh, they were cleared for human uh, trials to start with Neuralink, but, you know, questions being raised um, at the place of, of Neuralink's testing, the California National Primate Research Center, uh, you know, the, given the le- level of, of, of questions raised from, uh, you know, concerned groups, you're right. One has to wonder, you know, whether that's a wise step for them to take uh, without, you know, further you know, proving that uh, they've, they've improved uh, their testing uh, procedures. And the deadlines, too. I mean, the, the I think it was the first Reuters report had detailed that they were supposed to be hitting X, Y, and Z over the past five or six years in terms of deadlines, and they'd miss them. If the goal is to launch brain implants in humans by the end of the year, you know, we're already here in mid-September. Whether or not we're going to get that, who's to say? But it's certainly, right. I, I will not be the first to sign up for that. If, if, we're, if we're taking a tally here, I will cross myself off the list. Right. So yeah, they're going to have trouble recruiting for that study, I would think. <laughs> All right, uh, so that'll do it for this week. Tune in next week for Jack's interview with Moderna's Chief Brand Officer, Kate Cronin. That's it for this week. The MMM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. 